Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with three-time Super Bowl champion coach Mike Holmgren. All right, let's do this. And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone. On the program, I'm joined by a three-time Super Bowl champion. He's a member of the Seattle Seahawks Ring of Honor and is also in the Green Bay Packers Hall of Fame. Ladies and gentlemen, Mike Holmgren. Mike, thanks for coming on the program. Hey, I'm happy to be here, Brett. Thank you very much. Really interesting uh, watching your career and how it it, uh, progressed. You started as a high school coach at Lincoln High, you mentioned, or, or you went to BYU. You were a BYU coach. You won a national championship there. Obviously, longtime head coach in the NFL. Is there one constant about coaching football that that transcends, no matter what the level you're coaching at is? I, I think there is. I I I, uh, I thought about that too when I was hiring my assistant coaches when I got to the NFL. That I wanted teachers, and I was fortunate enough when I was uh, coaching in high school to work with guys and I saw how they did things. And, and then as I progressed into college football, um, I had the privilege of working with Lavelle Edwards at BYU and uh, a guy named Vic Rowan at San Francisco state university. And they were teachers and they were, they were, I saw how they treated people and how they got the message across. So when I got to the NFL, honest, and I know this sounds rather simplistic, but I, I thought I was just dealing with high school kids that were bigger and older. <laughs> so I, I kind of did it the same way, and, and uh, that's how I believed you should coach. You went to USC, uh, my alma mater as well. You were there from 66 to 69. You you were a part of a national championship team in 1967. See, you were a Sigma Chi. I remember the Sigma Chi as well. Yeah. I, I crashed their parties. I was never I was never a member. But um, in your eyes, why is USC such a special place? Well, I think one has a great uh, history particularly in athletics, but a lot of other things, you know, the, the, the medical part of that university, the, of course, the film industry was big part of that in, of that university. And I think <clears throat> the people that went there now hold on for a long time and still root for USC. It was, you know, I was, when I went there as a freshman on our football team, there were only two of us from Northern California. All the rest of the guys were growing up and played high school football in Southern California, and it was very much that way. Uh, so, but clearly, uh, you know, in the great rivalry across town with UCLA, and just when you went there, you knew you had a chance for the national championship. Quite honestly, yeah, I really enjoyed my time, and, and I and I get what you're talking about. It, it is close knit. I mean, still, uh, my younger brother. He went to SC as well, and he's one of those guys. I mean, it's Saturday. He's got his he's got his jersey on. He's riding down the road. The fight song's playing. Uh, actually, next week I'm taking Dad up 
and uh, and my son, we're going to go watch SC Notre Dame. So, well, that, I, 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 yeah, that's yeah, you talk about the UCLA rivalry. It's always been there. But that Notre Dame is a big one, too. So I haven't been to that Notre Dame SC game for for quite a few years. So I'm going to go check it out this weekend. Looking forward to it. I don't know how how recently you've been there, but it has changed a lot. Even from when I was there, I was there. My first year was 88, 88, 89, 90. I was in that Rodney Pete Marinovich era. And from then to current, how much it's changed up there is is it's unbelievable. It's like a different world. But I want to know, what was it like in 1967? Well, you know, it was there weren't. I think the population of the student body was only around, only around 6,000 at that time, undergraduates. <clears throat> so it was, uh, it was not a big, big university. So you got to know a lot of people. And as you pointed out, I, I joined a fraternity after my freshman year. And fraternity row in the university, there was a few streets uh, separating that. And quite honestly, the area around the university was a little sketchy at times. And so uh, you're right. I think since the Olympics, when the Olympics came in there and then they the university purchased a lot of the land between uh, the university and actually 28th where the, where the uh, fraternities were. And that expansion is unbelievable. Plus the facilities for the Olympics. I, Brett, I went in, I listen, our, I remember when I got there, we'd go down into the locker room. And there were these old steps, and they were worn out, and they were brick. And I'm going, this isn't very fancy. And then they used to tell us all the uh, the older fellows who had walked down those steps and and broke them in and all this kind of stuff. And I'm going, okay. Then we went into the locker room, and a lot of the showers didn't work. And the lockers were all messed up. And I'm going, this is a national what, – what is this all about? You know? <laughs> so – but since that time, oh, no, it's uh, – the school is really different. And – uh uh, but it's in a beautiful place, and and uh, I was very fortunate to be able to go there. And that Coliseum, I, I just went to a game last year. Uh, I, like I said, I usually try to make it up to one game a year. I went last year, and they'd redone all those suites up there. It's the Coliseum, I mean, as old as it is. And, and uh, you know, SC, lately, they haven't been on the top of their game. This year, they've got it back going again, but uh, – it, it was cool. The new suites and, and when that place is rocking and sold out, uh, which which I'm sure this this coming Saturday is going to be, it's it's a pretty special place. Oh, no, I, I in my first taste of the Coliseum uh, in California. Uh, and you might remember this. They had a north south shrine game football. Yep. Game. yep I do. So uh, Jim Plunkett and I were the quarterbacks for the north and uh we had, I'd always played, never played a night game before. Our, in San Francisco, you played day games. And uh, we played that game, and there's 60,000 people there at night. And you run out of the tunnel, and you go, man, this is something else. This is different. So that was my first experience with the Coliseum. But you're right. You know, when we play Notre Dame or UCLA in particular, there wasn't an empty empty seat in the house. And at that time, you, they sat at the end, the peristyle end, too. They didn't bring the bleachers in like they have it now a little bit. So, but it was, it was a special place. Uh, you grew up in Northern Cal, uh, in San Francisco area. What was Mike Holmgren like as a little kid? 
What'd you want to be when you grew up? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, you know, I grew up in a, my grandparents had come over from Sweden. And so they owned, uh, they started the Swedish American bakery. And if you know San Francisco at all, it's on market street, upper market. And we lived when I was little, we lived in a little apartment above the bakery and we didn't have a lot of dough. You know, I mean, there was not a lot of money flowing around, but, uh, that bakery was very, very important to all the Swedish folks in San Francisco. And then we moved out to the avenues, if you know anything about San Francisco. And then my biggest thing is there was a, in San Francisco, they have a, a playground system. So various, you have your schools, of course, but then you have playgrounds in various areas of the city and you competed against the playgrounds in sports. And so West Portal Playground was two blocks down from my house. And I probably was there but every day, almost every day of my young life. And when it was football season, we played football. And a lot of other guys, too. And when it was baseball season, we played baseball and basketball and so on and so forth. And that's how I grew up. And uh, sports were, I loved them. And it was very, very important to me. And it allowed me, of course, I then I got to play in junior high and then high school. And it allowed me to get a scholarship. So that was my, and growing up in the city, I was a city kid right in the city. And um, now today, when we go to Santa Cruz, our place in Santa Cruz, I take my grandkids up there and show them, this is where I went to school. This is where, this is West Portal Playground. And then lately they've been saying, Grandpa, we saw it last year and the year before, you know? <laughs> so I say, okay, enough. You've heard it enough. That's what grandpas do, though. You know, that's, that's I, I, what grandpas do. That's what grandpas do. You know, I, I always said that about my grandpa. I, 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 Gramps, you've told me that Ted Williams story fifty-two times. <laughs> I know. You know, and I tell my I tell my son that all the time. My dad wears him out about. You know, Gramps, you told me that. I said, listen, cherish these moments, buddy. One day you'll want you. You wish that grandpa was there telling you that story one more time. They're very cool. Yeah, um, and then, and then the other thing is they'll tell the story to their kids. You know? Without without a doubt, without a doubt. You went to Abe Lincoln High School. You were a quarterback. Started off as a lineman. Ended up being a quarterback. Obviously, went on to USC, uh, and and was an eighth round pick uh, with the cardinals in 1970 uh short thereafter though you started your coaching career and and i think pretty uniquely you started coaching in high school um when you were when you were going to college you end up you end up getting drafted the nfl draft but in your mind did you have a a, a game plan on what you wanted to do what your future was it was going to be if it wasn't an nfl player uh, not really you know uh I tell the story now that, that uh, I go to USC and as a freshman, you know, I, I started quarterback on the freshman team. He didn't freshman in those days, you know, didn't, didn't play varsity. Then, uh, then it didn't work for me as a player. You know, I got my whole senior year. I didn't play. I, you know, I blew out my shoulder before the first game in those days, quarterbacks didn't wear, wear red jerseys. She got hit. So I got hit in practice and, so, but then I, I almost graduated after four years and coach McKay, John McKay at the time wanted me to come back and play. Uh, and I said, no, you know what? And, and, and then I got drafted anyway, after even not having playing my senior year, but I honestly, Brett, I thought I was going to be a pro football star and a movie star. I thought, Hey, th I'm in the place. This is going good. I was in a couple of movies as an extra. I can do this. The world, the life is good. And then all of a sudden, my dream uh, kind of ended that way. 
So I came back to the city and, and uh, one of my old high school coaches phoned me. I was bartending and doing different things. And he goes, why don't you come over and help at the school? So that's what got me over to Lincoln. And then I went back to school, got my master's in teaching. And then the rest is kind of history. You, you were not only coaching your alma mater at Lincoln High, but you were teaching history. I remember my baseball coach in high school. He was my history teacher. Yeah, I mean, it, it was uh, – actually, I was at Lincoln High School, and then we moved down to San Jose after I was married, uh, which is still in the Bay Area, as you know. But it, And then I, I taught – yeah, I taught history and uh, mechanical drawing, of all things, you know. And I loved it. In fact, listen, I, I at that time, I never had uh, visions or aspirations to be a professional coach or even a college coach. I liked I liked coaching in high school. I liked working with the kids. I thought I could really help them in a lot of ways other than just coaching. But then, you know, as as you know, well know, you, you, you know, your life changes take place and stuff happens and pretty soon you're someplace else and you can't go back. So, but my high school days, those are, those are great times. I remember those kids. How do you go from high school coaching to the college game? How do do you get there? And you started off, you went to uh, San Francisco state. Um, How'd you make that jump? Eventually go to BYU where you win a national championship there in 1984. But how was that transition? Well, you know, I I coached in San Jose, as I told you, and then uh, we 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 did quite well. In fact, one of my quarterbacks was Marty Morningway, who later became coach of the Detroit Lions. Um, and then I took a sabbatical leave. I took a, a year off. You could do that in those days. And the head coach at San Francisco State, my brother had played there and been a great player for them. And I had known the head coach there. He's kind of legendary at that level. And uh, he asked me, why don't you come up and coach with me during your year off and just see how you like it? And I said, okay. So I went up there um, and then I liked it, but I had every intention of going back to, to high school coaching. But then after half the season, after half the year, I went in in, in, uh, in September and then in, in, in January, Lavelle Edwards of BYU knew the head coach at state and phones him and says, you know, there's my quarterback coach just left. Do you know of anybody? And that coach at state, he did that for a lot of coaches around the country. He knew people. And I hear him in the conversation. He goes, yeah, I got one sitting right here. I'd like to interview him. He's good. And then he hung up the phone. He goes, Mike, I got you a interview at BYU. <clears throat> I said, coach, because I'm involved in our own church and stuff. I said, I'm not LDS. I'm not a Mormon. I don't think, I don't want to, you know, I, I'd rather not, you know, I'll just stay here. I like it here. He goes, no, you're taking the interview. So I said, okay. <laughs> I came home and told Kathy, I said, well, I'm going to go take the interview, but then there's no way I'm getting the job, but it'd be a good experience. And so as things happen, sometimes I got the job. And so that's how I got to BYU. 1984, you won a national, national championship. And you stay at BYU through the 85 season. And now, once again, I asked you, how is that? How does that happen? Now, all of a sudden, you're the assistant coach, which I, I believe you're the quarterback coach 
for the 49ers. You're going to be there from 86 to 91 under Bill Walsh. How does that come to fruition? Well, I, I grew up in the Bay Area and, and I had friends in the Bay Area. And after uh, 1985, uh, Paul Hackett, if you remember that name, he left. Uh, there were some people that left uh, and the 49ers. And uh, my friend up there said, why don't you apply? Why don't you put your name in the hat? I said, there's no way. I'm five years removed from my high school coach. They're not going to hire me. He goes, well, what, what, what do you have to lose? So I had a friend who I knew a little bit on the staff. So he went to Bill, and I got an interview. And I told him, once again, I said the same thing to Kathy. I said, there's no way. I'm going for the interview, but it's unlikely it's going to happen, but it'd probably be a good experience. And so I went and talked to Coach Walsh. And he was real honest with me. He goes, Mike, the inter- this is, you've had a good interview, but I really have someone else in mind for the job. And uh, if he's available, I'm going to hire him. If not, we could talk again. And that told me, I said, well, you, you know, thank you very much. So I came home, BYU. And about three weeks later, he phones and uh, says, listen, uh, I'd like to offer you the job. And I said, boy, going home to San Francisco where I grew up and the 49ers, this is too good to be true. So that's how that happened. So I got in there. It's a man. That's the dynasty year. Oh man, that's my that's my wheelhouse. That's when I was in in high school. My favorite team was watching those watching those Niners teams and uh, or Montana, who ended up handing it off to the baton off to Steve Young and that West Coast. I mean, I, I love those teams. Um, you're the quarterback coach. I've often wondered, and I've asked quarterbacks this. You know, as baseball, football, completely different. Uh, you know, I have a hitting coach. We, we, we interact on a daily basis. I've had some great ones. I've had some ones that couldn't help me get a hit in Little League. Uh, but as a quarterback coach, what do you do? Do you ever get into the physicality of it, the technique, or is it more of, of X's and O's? At no, that I level. Think, well, at that level, it was funny because I got the job and I, I'm thinking, okay, Joe Montana's already gotten two MVP awards and they've won Super Bowls. How, what, how am I going to do this? Uh, what am I going to say to him <laughs> that he hasn't already heard or he's proven he knows it. So Bill one day came into my office and said, listen, Joe's coming over to the building. I had never met him. He goes, why don't you guys grab a cup of coffee or something and, and you get to know each other a little bit. So I said, sure. And so I'm going, now what am I going to do here? Joe comes in and goes, Introduced, we shake hands, and he goes, I said, let's go down and get a Coke or a cup of coffee. He goes, okay, we're halfway down the hallway, just the two of us. And he goes, Mike, just a second. And he, and he goes, listen, I know you're new and everything, but I want you to coach me hard. If I make a mistake, I want you to tell me. I want you to correct it. That's how I want us to work. And I, and immediately, Brett, I, I, I kind of the, the pressure gauge kind of went off, and, and I said, okay, this is going to work. And then to your, your question, I, w- I, was, I was both technique and, and strategy. But I was learning the, the 49er offense from Coach Walsh. And so I was a student as well as the coach. So while I was learning the offense, then I was, I was really hard on Joe and Steve on their technique and their reads and all those things because they asked me to be. And so he 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 made it he made it really good for me 
early on. It was it was perfect. But that's that's how I approached it. I, I wanted him to be the best he could be on the field while I was still learning that 49er offense. 89 and 91, Coach Seifert comes in. You're you're the offensive coordinator. Uh, you guys go to the Super Bowl and win two Super Bowls. First one against the Bengals, then the Broncos. Um, and like you said, I mean, at this point, probably six, seven years removed from being a high school coach, you're going to your first Super Bowl and not only going, but you're winning. Take me through that first Super Bowl season and, and uh, ha- had to be pretty darn awesome. Well, it really was in 1988. Uh, we had we had kind of not played our best football in the middle of the season, but then we made a run and we got into the playoffs. And none of us knew that that was going to be Coach Walsh's last year there. Uh, we didn't know that. Uh, I'm not sure he knew it at that particular point. But we get into the playoffs. Denny Green, who was one of my Friends and coach there had gotten the Stanford job, so he left. He was no longer there. So Bill came up to me and said, Mike, I want you now to coach you, coach the tight ends, the receivers, and the quarterbacks. So I said, okay. You know, then as we got into the playoffs, he said, he was acting kind of different because he would have a big say as to the game plan and all that. We prepare stuff, but then he'd cross things out and add things. Well, all summer we're preparing. I'm, I'm handing it to him. And he said, go with it. He just go with it. And he, and so we got into the playoffs and he said, listen, here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to call the game. Now, I'm still a quarterback coach because he didn't have a coordinator. And he goes, I want you to call the game. And then if, if, if I don't like the play, I'll change it. So I said, okay. So we win a couple of big games and, and he, he, Felt confident I could do it, I guess. Then we went into that Super Bowl with the same thing. And so um, that, I think that convinced him that I could do that. I could be a coordinator. I could even be a head coach. And so then he, but him, then he left. And uh, George Seifert became the head coach. And, uh, and I became the coordinator, which was really special. And then we went back to the Super Bowl the next year. And really had a, had a great year, and then and had a great Super Bowl against Denver. You won it again, fifty-five to ten. Um, your owner, pretty pretty iconic owner, uh, DeBartolo. Oh. Yeah, you, you got to give me a story of DeBartolo. I mean, from from everything I've heard, uh, maybe the greatest owner of a of a major franchise ever. No, he. You know what? Brett, you're right. He was he was quite something, and he loved his team and he loved his players. Uh, but he was also emotional and then had a little temper. And you know, if we didn't play well, he'd get fired up. And but he he also let Coach Walsh do it. And then when George was became the head coach, uh, you know, he after we won Super Bowls, he'd take the whole team to Hawaii and their wives, everybody. We have a week over there and have a. Super Bowl ring presentation part. It was unbelievable. And then the league finally said, you can't do that. You know, and, and salary cap, as you know, you can't do that and not have everyone else do it. So they canceled that. But I will tell you one quick story. We're playing the Packers, and uh, I'm up in the press box calling the game. And there it's a cold. It's it's late in the season, and, and we're doing not so good. It's a close game. And I'm calling the game, and, and we're playing, and – 
I don't know that uh, Eddie had moved, come into the, to the, to the press box and he was standing right behind me. I didn't know that because I've got my headset on and I'm calling the game. But we throw a pass to Jerry Rice. He runs 80 yards. We win the game. Okay, I jump up out of my seat and I punch the ceiling in the press box. And the ceiling had probably been there for 50 years. And all this crud, all this stuff fell down on our heads. All of this stuff. And I turn around and there's Eddie standing right behind me. And he goes, I go, oh, I'm sorry. And he grabs me and he gives me a big kiss, you know. And, you know, I go, oh, ah. So he, he, then he leaves. He goes, nice going. He leaves. And Bill McPherson, who was our my mentor and had been there a long time and a great defense coordinator, is next to me. He goes, now that kiss could be one of two things. He goes, that could either be nice going or, you know, it could be something else. You know, Eddie's Italian and Bill was Italian. <laughs> so, so, but, you know, he, he, I, I also had the privilege then of writing a letter on his behalf to get him in the Hall of Fame. I don't know how much good my letter did, but I he, he thanked me for it, and I was there when he went in. So, yeah, he was a great owner. You'll be there a couple more years, two Super Bowls in before you take over uh, the Packers. But I want to talk about uh, – there's a lot made of it, and me being a kind of a layman football guy um, – the coaching tree, too much or too little made of it? Well, I, I think, you know, I I think I was, when I went in, I told you before, I, I think I was, if nothing else, I was a good student under Coach Walsh. And a lot of his coaches went on to uh, be very productive head coaches. And so when I hired my first staff at, at Green Bay, um, I wanted a blend of veterans and young guys. Uh, I wanted teachers. So I thought, and I had created a list of guys like three years before. I didn't know if I was going to ever get a chance to be a head coach, but I, I wanted to be ready at the interview to talk about people. And so uh, my first staff, it turns out, was loaded with guys, as it turns out, who were really fine coaches, you know, from Andy Reid, Steve Mariucci, John Gruden, Dick Duran, Ray Rhodes. I mean, all those guys became head coaches. Mike Sherman later on. And um, I, I took, I, I honestly took great pride in that. That was, that was, I said, I, if I can pass the baton on to these guys, um, then, then I've done my job too. And it was funny when I coach against them, you know, it was like playing your brother in the backyard in a basketball game. You love them to death, but you're going, you're going hard. You know, you don't want to lose. Right. And I, I'm wondering for, for someone like you, that you, you mentioned that list, you had a lot of great coaches under you played for played or, or you coached under some great ones. You coached above some great ones. And it, it's almost like, I wonder if now you sit back and, and look back, are, are you kind of like a proud dad when you see them being successful? You know, I, I that's a good way to put it. You know, I, I, I have managed, I don't, I'm not a big phone guy and they've got their lives now, but as an example, uh, when Andy won this, uh, was going to the Super Bowl, Andy Reed, a couple years ago, um, he won a playoff game and I, I texted him or got on the phone with him, I think, and said, Hey, way to go and keep going. And he thanked me. He always thanks me if, you know, for all our time together. 
And I said, but I got to tell you one thing. You got to do something about your mustache. It's getting away. <laughs> I said, you're you're on the post game inter- you know press conference, and all I'm thinking about, gee, trim that thing. And he goes, all right. And then the next day, the next week, he was on after winning the Super Bowl. It looked good. I, so I texted him and said, thanks for listening. I appreciate that. Well, I- you're, you're the proud dad. He, he wants to make his dad proud. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you take over the Packers and uh, your first head coach job had to be unbelievable. And it's not the Packers that we know today. It wasn't that, you know, the dynasty you build, you and, uh, and we had him on the program, Ronnie Wolf. How big of an impact was Ron Wolf, your, your general manager? Oh, he was huge. You know, and I give him, uh, uh, first of all, he took a big chance in hiring me, first of all. And then that year, uh, you know, I interviewed actually with five teams and I interviewed with Green Bay first. And he he entered, he goes, I said, I got these other interviews set up. And he goes, I'll wait. He goes, I'll wait. You go do that. And right away, I'm thinking, gosh, looking back on it, that was unbelievable. He'd waited. And so then when I went in there, you know, he, he you know, Brett, I, I, have a, I've, I have strong feelings about this. If you go into an organization of football or baseball, I suppose, you'd know better. Uh, if the general, the general manager and the head coach have to be in lockstep, they got to be rowing the boat in the same direction. And if it, if they're not, if one guy's saying, well, I got him the players, he's not coaching, or the coach says, no, you gave me lousy players, it, that doesn't work. And so I have to say, Ron, in our time together, we would talk about a lot of things and talk about players and not always agree, but we never had an argument. And he, we always, we always had the Packers in mind uh, above all else. And I think I, I owe him a great deal. I really do. And, um, you know, he, he let me coach. He gave me all the help he could give me. And, um, no, it was good. It was a great way to come into the league as a first-time head coach. Uh, you end up getting Brett Favre, and, and that starts off. Obviously, that ended up winning three MVPs, three MVPs in a row. We had him on the program. He talked a lot about you and about Ronnie Wolf and how when he came over, he's just kind of this gunslinger. I guess he was a gunslinger till the end, but but just a little bit more of a polished one. Um Go to Super Bowl 31, you win it over the Patriots. You end up going to Super Bowl 32 as well, and, and you lose there. But you'd won two Super Bowls as, a, as an offensive coordinator in San Francisco under, obviously, un, an unbelievable team. And those had to be pretty fulfilling. Any difference winning it as the, as the head guy or, or equally uh, fulfilling? Oh, no, I think, I think in all honesty, I think it's – it's it's great, everything is really great. But when you're the head guy making the decisions, uh, it, it probably meant a little more. Um, you know, the rings are still special. <laughs> I mean, from all the rings are special, but uh, the idea you put a staff together, you made the decisions, you, and and I always call it plays. But it it uh, in building the team. I, I took a little more pride in that, and then I felt better about that. Um, but you know, it's it's still. Listen, 
I was lucky because coaching, I got to do something for a long time that, that I really loved. And uh, it was my job, but it was a lot more than that. You got to, like I mentioned, and you're going to go on and we'll get to that in a minute when you go to Seattle and, and you coach Hasselback. Uh, but a little rapid fire just for the four to this stage. Four unbelievable quarterbacks in Montana, Young, Favre, and Hasselbeck. So I'll go first. Just give me a, a line. What comes to mind, Joe Montana? I would say uh, perfectionist uh, and very, very smart. And this next guy is actually my personal favorite. I have no idea why. It was just, like I said, that was my sweet spot when when Young took over and he was running that, that West Coast offense. Uh, he was just my personal favorite, Steve Young. Yeah, uh, probably the, the the best runner and a great athlete and also a pretty good babysitter. He babysat for my kids when I was at BYU. <laughs> Brett Favre. Brett Favre probably had more fun coaching him than any player I've ever had, uh, but a character. And uh, every once in a while, I had to grab him by the shirt. <laughs> And in Seattle, Mr. Hasselback, who, by the way, we were my time in Seattle. I think it was 2003. We were going to a uh, we had an award banquet and it was the mayor. You know, Mariners were doing really well. Seahawks were doing well. And uh, we started debating on on the mental side of sport. And to this day, we and, and I had uh, Hass on the on the program probably about a year ago. Now we were still arguing about it. I said, "Do you still think football's tougher mentally?" And he said, "Absolutely." And we were making our pros and cons. This is why you're wrong. I said, "Listen, I got to play every single day for 162 games." Yeah, Brett, but I go out once a week and get my brains kicked in. I said once a week, and if you have a good week, you're you're walking around campus with your chest <laughs> pumped out. I said, the downside now is, is if you have a bad week, you got to wear that till the next week. So you can redeem yourself where the next day I have a chance to redeem myself. But I said, you got to think about this when I'm going bad, there's nowhere to hide. Cause I'm in the lineup tomorrow. And then I'm in the lineup the next day and the next day and the next day. And there's nowhere to hide. The, that was the, funny. The counter to that is when I'm swinging the bat well, I can't. I'm whistling coming to the ballpark. So there's great. There, it, it, it was a fun thing for us to do. There's great points on either side. But uh, yeah. all right, I told I told my story. Hasselback. No, I, I, what I'm I'm pleased. I've got a smile on my face right now because I'm glad I wasn't the only one he argued with. Yeah, you know, they argue with you too, but. No, Matt, uh, you know, I, we drafted him when I was in Green Bay, and then I was fortunate enough to get him. And there was a learning curve early on and because uh, uh, and, and, he's very, very bright, very bright, and thought he knew how to do stuff. And we had changed some things when I came to Seattle, and he was doing – he goes, well, that's not how you used to do it. And I said, no, we're doing it this way now. And it took him a while, you know, but uh, it's it's a – he went in the ring of honor the same time I did. Uh, and he was, he, he really got the most out of his ability of any of those guys. I think he, he really turned into a really fine, fine player because he worked very, very hard. And, uh, I'll tell you one, one quick story. Uh, we were playing a game and, and, and he had thrown a, he'd taken a sack or thrown incomplete on third down. And there was a receiver right in front of me, wide open on the sideline. And, 
that's where he should have thrown the ball. Everything we talked about, the, the rotation of the second, he should have thrown it to the guy right in front of me for, for a completion for a touchdown. He didn't for some, whatever reason. So he comes off the field. And I go, why, you know, why didn't you throw it over here? And he, he, he was fired up and he came back at me a little bit. I said, uh-oh, no, go sit down. I said, Seneca Wallace, get, get up. You're going in the game. Matt, you're finished. Sit down. And the guys on the phone, all my coaches go, Mike, what, Mike, slow down. You're not, don't do that. What are you doing? And I said, everyone else, be quiet. Matt, go sit down. So I, I was there. I was just fuming, just out of my mind. And pretty soon, about two minutes later, he comes up and he goes, can we talk about this? And I said, all right, what? He goes, okay, I'm sorry. I said, okay, I'm sorry too. You're, get back in. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we had those moments, but. Um, he came into my office one day after about year three and said, I, I get it. I finally get it. I get it. I said, good. We're both on the same side now. Let's go. But it took, there was a learning career, Brett. And then he's, you know, you know him. He's very bright and he very strong willed. So, but that helped him be a great player as well. You know, when I think about just like that story you just told and, and the maturation process for us as players, uh, I remember young, early in my career where, of course, I knew it all. You know, I'm 25 years old and, and I've got a couple of years under my belt in the big leagues and I think I know everything. And I had a, a manager. I, I was fortunate enough in my career to play for a lot of great ones, uh, Pinella and Bochi and and. Bobby Cox. And, but looking back on my career, I had a gentleman, one of the greatest managers, the greatest manager I ever played for. Uh, his name was Davey Johnson, you know, the World Series champion, Mets skipper. Sure. And 1994, man, he pushed my buttons. He did things I didn't understand. I was having a really good year, but we didn't see eye to eye on anything. Yeah. And it took me till years later and I saw Davey at off season in an event and I went up to him and I, you know, said, hi, shook his hand. And I said, Davey, it took me a while. It took me a little bit of growing up, but I get it. I get what you were doing. And he just smiled at me and he said, yeah, you, you, you didn't think uh, I knew what I was doing back then. I said, <laughs> I really didn't. I thought you were a jerk and I didn't like you, but I realized your point and how you were getting the best out of me. And he goes, yeah, at that point, Brett, I'd been around a little bit. And I said, yeah, I get it. But it's funny how you say that about Hasselback. And he says, hey, I get it. I understand now. As players, sometimes we we need to look at the guys that have been there, done that for a lot longer than we have and kind of trust them a little bit. You know, it's kind of like life when you're talking to your kids and you tell them, hey, I was 18 one time. I know what this. Oh, dad, you don't understand. You don't know that's what right. I'm going through. And I'm going, well, <laughs> you know, I guess that's probably what I said to my dad. But it's cool hearing a story about that because I can I can relay it to my life and my story uh, about the, the growing up and listening to people. And, and, you know, you're not always wise. You continue to learn. I'm learning to this day. You know, I'm 53 years old. Uh, my kid who's playing in the minor leagues, he still teaches me stuff about baseball that once again, I think I know it all. And, and, and I think, wow, that's a really interesting way to go about it. It's pretty cool. Well, you know, you make such a good point. And, and, and I remember with Favre, after each season, I would take the quarterbacks and we'd have a little debriefing on how the season went. And 
And then uh, we had, he'd done well, but he, he was still pretty wild on stuff. And uh, we made the playoffs finally. And then uh, I said, okay, here's what I want you to think about in the offseason. I want you to eliminate this and we'll work on this and this. And it, obviously he didn't buy in to what I was saying. And he goes, Mike, I said, we got to calm down. And he goes, Mike goes, he goes, Mike, I, that's how I play. That's just how I play. And I said, okay, um, you want to go to the Super Bowl? And he goes, yeah, of course. And I said, okay, the way you, we're playing now, the way you're playing, we'll get to the playoffs, but we'll never get to the Super Bowl. So if you work with me on this, I think we can get there. And to his credit, he, he probably didn't like what I was saying, but he tried really hard, and eventually, you know, it, it clicks in. But those come to Jesus moments with your players, you know, it's uh, I look back on it now, it puts a, honestly, it puts a smile on my face. It's really cool. I mean, it's some of the, the neatest parts of the game. When I look back now and and had learning moments and and aha moments i mean that's what it's it's all about and and to pass that along i try to pass it along as much as i can sometimes they listen sometimes they don't listen you know sometimes you gotta you, you gotta fall over and bump your head and wake it, it, for it to really wake you up but uh it, it's uh it's fascinating to me that's that's why i love it so much yeah. um you're off to seattle now in 1999, you take over the Seahawks. You have some great years. You go, I think you're there eight years, and you, you go to the playoffs six times. Four of those times, you're NFC West. Uh, you, you win four NFC West titles. You go to the Super Bowl, 2005. Um, fifth time to the Super Bowl. At this time in your career, you think, all right, I got this figured out. You've won three. What is the what is the process as the as the head coach going to your fifth Super Bowl? Do you feel like you're you're w more well prepared, or or is it still the Super Bowl and you never know what's going to happen? Well, I think I think you uh, you never know what's going to happen in the game, really, but you do know uh, you you have an idea of how you want to prepare and and the tempo that you want to prepare. And my I remember a couple Super Bowls where. The Super Bowl, you know, it's two weeks before the game typically. So you do your, you put in your game plan for the most part when you're home before you get there. And then when you get there, they have press conferences, they, all that stuff that Super Bowls have. And you're working on maybe some red zone or some specialty items when you get there. But it basically, you got to time it because the players, that two week stretch after the season, they're ready to play the game on Thursday. If you're not careful, there you you want them to you want them to peak exactly at the right time, and that sometimes can be a challenge. So I learned that, and I think I was more prepared for that sort of thing. The more Super Bowls you get to play in, uh, what was hard was that Super Bowl with uh, Seattle, and we played Pittsburgh. Uh, that it was it was like a Jerome Bettis coming home party. And, and they passed out, I remember the league passed out yellow towels and they were supposed to pass out blue towels as well. And if you remember the game, Steve Largent told me this afterwards. No one they they forgot to pass out the blue towels. The whole stadium was in yellow. And so it was it was a Pittsburgh home game. And I didn't I didn't that I wasn't prepared for. And so 
Um, you know, but uh, the other stuff and, and getting the team ready to play, uh, I think you learn that stuff. And, and the more Super Bowls you can play in, I think you're better prepared. Time in Seattle. I, I was there a similar time. And uh, I remember what was going on right next door at Safeco Field. Uh, my second, it was my second tenure in Seattle. I came up as a rookie. I came back in, in 2001. And I remember that city and how crazy it was going for Mariners baseball in 2001, 2002, yeah. 2003. And then by 2005, I'm going over to your stadium in the offseason, going to those games, and I'm watching these fans, and I'm going, that's how they were a couple of years ago at Safeco Field. And it, it's been, I don't know, it, it's just, it was good to see the Mariners uh, kind of put it together this year. I think they're finally after, you know, 18, 19 years of really not being competitive, uh, they've turned the corner. And I, I think they're going to be really good. And I think they're, they're really putting the right pieces in place. And I look for big things for them next year. But for years and years, I'd come back up you know, to, to visit in Seattle and go to a Mariner game and, and interact with the fans. And I'd, and I'd watch it. It was just different. That dynamic, I said, you know, in the early 2000s, this place was a was a Beatles concert every night. And for me not to see that. And, and I always wanted to say all you, if you just win, if you just win, those Seattle fans are unbelievable. You got to witness on the on the Seahawks side. Talk about the city of Seattle a little bit and, and how special it is. Obviously, you make your home there. Well, yes. And then, you know, what? and we're we're very happy to be here. It's a great city. Um, all my kids are here. My grandkids are here. Everybody's here except my one daughter who's back in Chicago. Uh, but you know, it was great. And I remember when we built the stadium, uh, the first couple of years, I remember we played in, in, uh, over uh, the first of the kingdom was my first year. And then we played at Husky stadium while they were building the stadium. And, and as we got better, you know, it, it just, the fans just embraced us. And to the point where uh, when we played the championship game against Carolina in 2006, um, uh, you know, it was just, it was just unbelievable, the noise. And in previous to get there, we had played the Washington Redskins. Joe Gibbs had come back and he had been a line coach at SC when I was there. And then I coached against him, of course, before he came back and the noise was crazy. And so he phoned me after he retired. He That was his last game. About two weeks later, and he had said, I, I've got a guy I'd like to recommend for your coaching staff. And I said, okay. And he goes, Mike, tell me the truth now. You piped in music into that field, didn't you? Or noise. And I said, no. No, coach, we, we didn't. It was just the people. And he goes, oh, come on. You, you know, I've coached a long time. I've never been in a game like that. Just tell me. I mean, you you know, I won't tell you. You just tell me. I said, Coach, honestly, that's just the way they are. And he goes, okay, don't don't say anything more. I don't want you to lie to me. You'll see me in a couple years at my at my car place in North Carolina. You'll tell me the you'll tell me the truth then. And I said, Coach, I'm telling you the truth. That's how they were. And so it's and it's continued. Brett, you know that if you go to a game now, that thing with Russell Wilson this first game this season. It's nuts, you know, and you're the opposing team. It's really hard. Tremendous home field advantage. And the fans have really embraced the Seahawks and have for a long time. 
and still do. Yeah, it really is. That that experience going across the street uh, from now it's T-Mobile Park uh, to watch a Seahawk game. It's it's pretty special. Um, 2009 to 12, you're the president of the Browns. But I but I want to touch on you were the general manager and head coach in Seattle. Yes, you'll you'll never see that in baseball. Just different. Is it easy for you to do that? Or is it tough? It's hard. That was hard, but I've talked to I've talked to baseball guys about this because it's really I, and you obviously you know, but it's really different. It seems to me different than how football people do it. But I had both responsibilities, uh, and but so then I I wanted to coach. I really wanted to still coach, and that would be my emphasis. So. To do that job, I still would have had the final decision on players and stuff, but I had to get good personnel people and good financial people, you know, be, deal with contracts and then do the scouting and all that kind of stuff. So um, I remember talking to Jimmy Johnson about that when he was with the Cowboys, and he was more into the personnel side of it. He was the head coach and absolutely in charge of everything. But he turned the turned the offense and defense over really to his coordinators, and they did that part of it. But I want I didn't want I want to stay in coaching, and but it's it's hard. It's not impossible, but you know, figure it this way: I, I I've got a player, and I'm also dealing with his contract, and I'm dealing with whether he's there or not, and I'm talking to agents. It got to the point where my financial guy said, "I can't have you in the room anymore." When I Please don't, because I get mad. And he goes, you don't want him to get mad. You just want to just talk to him, you know? I said, okay. So I learned a lot of stuff doing that, though. I mean, it was it was interesting, but I also learned the coach coaching was what I loved. And the other stuff, turn it over to people that were really good at it. We touched earlier on the Ron Wolf, uh, your general manager in, in, in Green Bay. And you said how great he was and what a great relationship you had with him. all your years. What do you think when it comes to head coach, uh, general manager, what is what is the most important thing? What is the right now? Let me put it this way. What is the biggest obstacle, the toughest part of that relationship? I look at it from a managerial point in, in on the baseball side. And I think you got to get along with your GM. The GM usually, as, unless you're a tenured guy, unless you're a guy, a Joe Torre at the end, that's going to have some say on the personnel. Usually the general manager in the organization, they make the decisions. They'll let you in on some of the discussions to say yay or nay. Yeah, I like that move. But but for the most part, they're making, you know, fiscal moves. They're making personnel choice. And then once the season starts, it's here's your team. Make the best of it. Um, what did you find to be the biggest, I guess, I guess, put it that way, challenge of that relationship? Uh, to me, because I, I, I had had Ron Wolf, and then in Seattle, I had some different folks that it didn't quite work quite so well. But what I learned was, People, who gets credit, if you're too concerned about who gets credit for the win, who gets credit for the success, then that's a problem. If if someone wants that credit more than together, you get it together, then that, that could cause a problem. 
because as I said earlier, that's um, I'm giving you the players, but you're not coaching them. Or the coach says, you gave me players I didn't want. You didn't go to do a good job in giving me players. That's not a, a recipe for success. That was the hardest thing for me. I think you just, hey, we're all in this together. You know, we will all get the same ring. Well, well, you know, it, it, so that's how we have to look at it. And I think teams hurt themselves when that isn't defined. That isn't made obvious to people. 2012, uh, you get that phone call. You're going to the Packers Hall of Fame. Probably a, a foregone conclusion. Um, shoot, Mike, you've got you've got your own street. There's certain people on here. I've had people on here. I thought, but oh, what's the pecking order? Well, it's Hall of Fame. Obviously, it's numbered, retired. Now, the guys with statues, there's not too many guys that got statues. But there's also not too many guys that have a street. You've got Holmgren Way uh, in Green Bay. But that Packer, your time with the Packers, special time. Uh, I think the best, the best run of any head coach ever in Packer history, seventy-five, and I think it was thirty. Um, special going into that Packers Hall of Fame. Oh, it really was. You know, that's a our time there was was very special for me and my family. You know, my kids, a couple of my daughter, I have four girls. Two of them were in college already in Chicago, but two of them went to school there, graduated high school in Green Bay. And it, growing up in the city, the Green Bay, and, and Brett, you know, it's a different place. It, you couldn't have a city that size have a franchise in the NFL anymore. That, that wouldn't work. So how does it work? Because all the people are, they're, they're there for the team. It's the whole state. And so um, to be able to go in there, yeah. Uh, with other people that that I see the names and I, it's really something. I I uh, I had the privilege. I remember coaching there, and and then they had a, a the older guys would come in, Nitschke and Bart Starr and Horning, and those guys would come in to give a uh, a camp to business business executives. They'd have a little mini camp for these guys. It was it was really something to see. But here I am. They wanted me to speak, and I'm I'm in awe of the guys of those guys, and I'm the coach. <laughs> so uh, it was a special place, and and uh, it was quite an honor to go in the Packer Hall of Fame. It really was. Uh, second Hall of Fame for you last year, 2021 Ring of Honor, Seattle. Uh, got that call going in your second Hall of Fame. Just yes. as just as special. Yeah, it really was. I mean, it's, you know, you, you and I, listen, and I'm honest about this, honestly. The, the awards and the things that happen uh, are, are something. They're really special. And it's fun to see my kids look at me maybe with, with a little twinkle in their eye or my grandkids or whatever. But uh, uh, that's not why and I'm, I'm sure you know this, you were probably the same way. That's not why you get into the business in the first place. I was a high school coach. I never thought I'd be, be in the ring of honor or someplace. And, and I liked it, but um, I really wanted the respect of my peers more than the awards. I wanted the guy to say that guy can coach, you know? And so 
that was, but the awards are special. Listen, I'm, I, they are special. They're great. And uh, Seattle was just as special as Green Bay. You worked with so many great quarterbacks and kind of were, was an, you were an offensive genius, kind of known as that. Um, the great court, and you had some iconic kind of passing of the torches, the, the Montana to Young, the, uh, the Favre to uh, Aaron Rodgers. As a coach, as a head coach, how tough is that? Is the writing on the wall when you know it's, especially when you're dealing with a Hall of Fame caliber quarterback and you know there's somebody waiting in the wings, when is that right time? How do we prepare that next guy? I don't know. Tell me your your view of the the nuances that go on in that in that game of it's going from him to him. And this guy is huge. He's going to be a Hall of Famer. He's you know he's got the key to this city. But this guy behind him, he's the next guy. And I don't know. Is it is it something you got to deal with with kit gloves or I don't know. That's interesting for me. Yeah, you know what? It's, it's not only for you, it's for me too. I mean, it was. Uh, I would say some kid gloves, yes, because if you have a, a franchise uh, quarterback, and but then at some point, if you're still there, particularly if you're going to still be there, uh, you have to get the next guy in line. And so what what I always tried to do, honestly, was you're going to get we had Favre, um, and then Matt Hasselbeck, but then and then Steve followed Joe, but. You you try and time it so, yeah, this could be your last contract to the current guy. And then you get the young guy to come in and learn from him to do that. In this day and age, that doesn't work very well. If you remember, I wasn't there, but Brett, they tried to do, they did that with Brett and Aaron Rodgers, but then Brett left and played, had good years with Minnesota and the Jets after that. Joe Montana left, and they traded him to Kansas City. He had a good year, took Kansas City into the playoffs. So, uh, but then you got if you don't get that next guy, your franchise is looking for him for ten years. So it, it's your obligation to kind of do it as painful as that can be, particularly when you have relationships with the quarterback. Uh, you still have to do it, and 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 he understands it, but he doesn't like it, and so. Look what's happening in Green Bay now with with Rodgers and that young guy that they have there. And right, you, it could be another changing of the guard. That's right. And so, but if you're responsible for the organization, and if you put that first, you still have to do it. And uh, and but it's kid gloves, and it's painful sometimes. And it's tough because you your main guy, you know, that star that's been your star for a long time. You got to say, oh, yeah, by the way, I need you to play really well. But but this guy behind you, he's going to be taken over soon. All right, let's go get him. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I the one thing about Coach Walsh, and I, I remember this, he would call guys in. I remember uh, Dwight Clark. You remember that name? I remember wide receivers. He, he was great and great human being, just great. Randy Cross was a big lineman for us, an important lineman went in the broadcast. That he would, he would, of course, there was no free agency then, so they were 49ers. He'd call them in and say, okay, this is your last year. And they'd go, well, I, why do you say that? I, I, can, I can play three more. No, this is, this is, be thinking about it. This is going to be your last year, you know? And he did that. He just did that. 
And I go, I, it's harder to do in this day and age, it seems to me. But um, he he kind of had a, a radar. He kind of knew when the time was right. I have to give him credit for that. S- sometimes it's very difficult to see. And and you're right. Sometimes it's making the call. You mentioned Montana. You mentioned Favre going on and, and being successful. It doesn't, nec- it doesn't mean you're done. It means your time here has run. And right. every, everybody's time runs out, no matter who you are, no matter how great of a player. There will be a day when there's somebody knocking on your door saying, all right, it's my turn and it's time for you to move on. And a lot of guys do. They move on. They go on to to a new venture and, and maybe have success for another couple of years. Um, I remember talking to Brett and he said that to me. He he because he wasn't happy with it. He did it in a very classy way and in a very politically correct way when when he was on the show. But I could tell that when when Rogers took over and, and Favre had moved on, he he had a bone to pick and he wanted to go back to Green Bay and he wanted to beat them worse than anything he ever wanted in his career. But I think that's there's nothing wrong with that. Us as athletes, that's the competitive the, the competitiveness in us. Uh that that brings that brings that out in us, I think. No, I think what Brett is funny. He after he left the Packers, I think he went to I think he went to Minnesota first, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and then I'm at my cabin in Santa Cruz in the summer, and he phoned me. He phoned me. He goes, Mike, I, I think I don't know if I'm going to play anymore. I think I want to retire. So we talked for we talked for an hour about the pros and cons and how he felt and are you healthy and. Why? And we did all this. And he, and I said, okay, if that's how you feel, maybe that's the best decision. He goes, okay, I'm going to phone him today and let him know. Two days later, he signs his contract. He's re-signs. What they had done, some of his teammates went down to his home and talked him into re-signing. He, he resigned. He did that twice, two summers. I go, are we having this conversation again? You know, but he, he loved the game so much. And it, it's hard. It's hard to put it down if you're playing – if you're healthy and still playing at a pretty good level, but you know what? It's, it's still a difficult decision for the club to make and the guy making that decision to shake hands with the guy and say, okay, we got to We got to go in different direction. You look at the game today in 2022, the state of, of the NFL, uh, better or worse than it's been. Oh, gosh. You, you know what? That's the old coach. You're talking to the old coach and saying it was better when I was coaching. Right. Uh, I would, but I would say this. I would say there, there was a little more privacy we had. You know, there were the, the stuff could be, you could keep things in the locker room, keep things in the building. I like that. I think it's, you get stuff. Everyone's on social media. There's all sorts of stuff going on. That's, I think, it was better then. Now, also, the amount of money, and, uh, you know, I, I, you could probably equate it to baseball, too. I'm not sure. But the amount of money some of these guys, it's, 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 start, it's staggering. And so, all of a sudden, they're not the, just a player anymore. They're kind of, they're half, half a coach and half a, that, I think, has caused some problems for some franchises. And so, um, I always had a bright line between coaches and players. I didn't have a lot of rules, but there was a bright line. Listen, I'm going to help you be the best player you can be. And then the ball, I'm handing you the ball, and you got to do it on the field. But you're the player, I'm the coach. So let's make sure we understand that. And I think I think now it seems to be that's a little clouded right now. And that's that. I don't like that either. 
you make you bring up a great point uh, from the fiscal side of things, um, because there has to be that line. And all of a sudden now you've got a guy making 30, 40, some cases pushing 50 million a year. Yeah. Dealing with his his head coach or in baseball, his manager who's making two or three million dollars. And he's going to kind of look at it. Who's going to win that fight in the end? And I don't know. I, I don't think that could ever be a positive thing for the game at, in, in any sport. Uh, I'm with you on the on the social media. I, I look back and, and my last year, my last year in uniform was 2007. And it has changed so much since that time, you know, with sure. the technology and the social media. These guys can't go anywhere. And and everybody, they're a lot more than just athletes now. It's almost like everybody has their own brand and, and they're representing a certain thing and they've got to get. I don't know. It's just a different world. I, I, I'm i like you. I don't want to be that guy that tells my kid, well, when I played, it was better. You know, <laughs> that right, sounds right. like my grandpa talking to me again in the Ted Williams <laughs> stories. I said I'd never be like that, but I look for the positive things. There's a lot of things in today's game that I'm envious of that I, because I was a, I, I was an information crazy guy when I was playing, especially late the second half of my career. I wanted all the Intel I could get. I wanted every piece of video you could, you could pull up. I wanted his, this pitcher we're, we're facing tonight. I want his last two starts. I want the last time I faced him. I want his sequences. I want, if you can, uh, piece together any video equipment of the bullpen for the Toronto Blue Jays coming in for a four game set. I want that in my day. That was a challenge. We were just going to DVDs now with the push of a button, man, these guys, they have these, these, uh, their tablets. It's got everything you could, I could sit there in my room the night before a series and just go through everything. I mean, I'd be a, a kid in a candy shop today, but some of the other things, uh, not so much. You mentioned the privacy. I was a big, believer in what goes on in that clubhouse stays in the clubhouse and, and, and will always stay in the clubhouse to the day where, to the day I'm not kicking anymore. Uh, That, that was sacred for me. I I don't like seeing uh, the changes in society where that's really not sacred. Like it used to be. I think it needs to be to create an unbelievable culture. But then again, uh, you're right. I, I, I don't want to go on and on about, yeah, when, when I played it, because it is, it's, it's, you know, you, you got to kind of play the middle of the road. And, and I don't like listening to the ex player that, that says that I say, well, instead of complaining uh, about you and, and talking about how you, it was better when you played, tell me what they could do. Give me a smart answer, what they could do to make their, their generation better. The, each generation goes through their time. It's their game. These players sure. today, you know, people talk to me all the time about, Brett, these unwritten rules in baseball. You know, if you're, if you're paying attention, there was a lot made of that. I said, the unwritten rules of baseball are whatever the current crop of players determine them to be. My unwritten rules in 2002, they're a lot different than they were now. You do some of the things these players do now in 2002, your next at bat, you're going you're gonna to be wearing one in the neck. And that's right. just the way it is. Yeah. That doesn't mean that I'm going to come in and tell you what the unwritten rules are. The unwritten rules are whatever they say they are current crop of players and history will, will, will judge all of us and on how great our generation was. Well, you know, you brought, you bring up something and, and uh, I know the analytics, you know, it seems to me that, uh, and I guess it started with, uh, in, 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 with the Oakland A's at one point, 
But the analytics in baseball, like you said, you knew everything. Uh, I work with Bucky Jacobson, uh, and who played for the Mariners for a little bit. And, you know, he, he, the information a player gets about different things in baseball. And then that went, I, I kind of understood why. But then all of a sudden, the analytics came into football. And uh, I'm thinking the games, the, the games are different. There's statistics and things you have to know about football, but the games are different. And stuff happens on the field and scrimmage play, and no one's thinking about the numbers somebody gave you. You know, I, I, I tease him on, on the air saying, you got five guys in a room uh, looking at computers and figuring out all this stuff. Then they come and give it to me. These are the numbers, all this stuff. I go, thank you. I'd say, thank you. And then I'd read some of it, listen to some of it, but then I do what I want to do in football. In baseball, I think, I'd ask you. I, I think it's it's a very very important part of that game. Well, I think analytics are are great, but I think they can be dangerous in the wrong hands. Mass analytics, I think, can hurt a young player. Uh, what's important? Launch angle. Well, that's not for everybody. Um, I think from a from a coach, from a, a manager position, I still think the greatest coaches, the greatest managers are going to take all the analytics, take all the info you possibly can. But in the heat of the battle, the great ones have a gut and they've got a good gut. You know, you as a head coach, you said, I, I, I like those analytics, but I'll make that decision when it's crunch time, when the game's on the line, I always feel that the analytics are kind of a, a, a crutch a little bit. You can just play the computer and at the end of the game, you can go into your press conference and say, well, the computer said that, that, and oh yeah, that backs it up. I think greatness, it comes with a good gut going out to the mound and the computer says, well, the third time through the, through the lineup, you should do this. Well, you haven't taken into consideration the man I'm talking to and what's inside of him. And he transcends these analytics when it comes to that, that look he gives me that tells me I got this skip or that, you know, on the, on the reverse side, that look he gives me right there means I'm done. So I got to take him out of this game. But I think the great, the great managers, the great coaches have a great gut. I don't know if you, you agree with that, but I think the great ones have to, and, 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 when push comes to shove, throw out those analytics and go, no, this is what I'm feeling in my heart of hearts. I couldn't agree with you more. I really couldn't. I'm watching games now and a lot of, a lot, a lot more teams go on fourth down or they, those decisions come up seems to a lot more in a little different way than when I was coaching. And I think they're relying on those numbers, except there are certain times you, you gotta you just go, no, I'm doing this because this is what I feel. This is what I think is right. So, no, I I couldn't agree with you more. Well, Mike Holgren, I, I appreciate coming on the show. This was this was a lot of fun. It, it was cool. Uh, what a career! Great career. Uh, hopefully, one day you'll be in in uh, in the NFL Hall of Fame, in the Football Hall of Fame. Um, but I appreciate coming on. Um, hey, Thank you for having me. I really do. This was fun. It was yep. good to talk to somebody who knows what he's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> or kind of does. He fakes it well. Uh, what we do each and every Boone podcast at the end of the podcast is we kick it back to the voice of the podcast. 
And that voice is Dan Levy. Dan? That's going to do it for the Brett Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy, the technical director, producer, voice of the Boone Podcast, EP, executive producer, Rich Herrera Digital. All gets uploaded by Liz Landry. Do us a favor, share the Boone Podcast. Neighbors and friends and all those that love sports, make sure you subscribe. Never miss an episode. And while you're at it, give us a five-star rating and share your feelings about the podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boone Podcast, he is Brett Boone. You can find him on social media at the Boone 29. I'm Dan Levy, BASS on air. That is base on air, all of my social medias. Thanks for listening. We'll do it again soon. Have a great one.